Hello, my name is Hazen Kyler, and welcome to the Greenhouse Ensemble's Portrait of an Artist, a podcast where we sit down and talk with today's independent artists of any discipline. Some are well-known, and some are not yet well-known, but all of them are driven, passionate, and precise in their work. So welcome to our second episode. Stav G is a singer-songwriter from Tel Aviv. Pace Magazine has called her a must-listen-to artist for 2018. Stav's Menar song has been called breathtaking, captivating, beguiling, and utterly beautiful. It's poetry for the ears and definitely the most gorgeous piece of music you'll hear this year, says London's The Devil Has the Best Tuna. Today's music all comes from Stav's debut album. And now, without further ado, I give you Stav G. Were you born in Tel Aviv? I was born near to, uh, not true. I was born in Haifa. <laughs> it's uh, northern from Tel Aviv. We, as a family, moved a lot. What did your parents do? My mom's a composer. She composes he- Hebrew poetry with influences from bossa nova, classical, and jazz music. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, her music is beautiful and complicated. And my father is a pilot. So <laughs> and he's a pilot? Yeah, so we moved a lot in different locations for his work. Israel is not such a huge country like here. So we moved from the south to the north, to the south again, to the north again. And still my grandparents could come and help my mother and, and visit. And we kind of grew up with the same kids. So if we move, part of our friends moved with us. Like maybe a couple of months later, but they did. Oh, because their, their families had the same kind of yeah. military kind of thing? So yeah. they So groups would move together to do specific... Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> it wasn't planned or anything. Yeah. But we got to grow up with most of the same friends. And then, yeah, when I... I was six we settled down in the same town so we felt rooted it was tougher on my mother than on us as children it was fun we went to visit the airplanes on saturdays and we had lots of i don't know meadows there <laughs> to just run around and do what kids do does your father have any connection with music at all yeah he used to play the guitar when he was a teenager my grandfather from my mother's side was a pianist and he used to lecture his friends about how to listen to classical music my cousin is also a musician a working musician <laughs> oh wow it may it may be in the blood a little bit yeah yeah were you always interested in music then or did it happen at a certain age or were you, was it just at the very beginning oh, it was just always. something Always. I used to go with my mother to rehearsals. She conducts choirs and she composes for theater. And sometimes she didn't have a babysitter and my father had to work. So she just took me with her. Wow. So I used to stand behind her and do the hand movements of the conductor and make everyone laugh. And I was always singing. Always. It's just, it was a matter of choice whether to study it professionally or actually study acting. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you, It's still you, a dream to study acting. acting. Oh, <laughs> I'll teach you. <laughs> I took some classes as a teacher. It was fun, but uh, after after my service, I I needed to choose, and I felt like if I if I wouldn't give music a chance, I would really regret it. So I said, okay, I'll go to music college for one year, see if I like it, and I liked it. So 
I went on with it, I guess. My grandfather, when I talked to him, because he, I think, wanted me to go to business school. Mm. Um, and I... He's smart, right? And I... Yeah, he was... <laughs> he, he was a smart person that, that I didn't listen to. Um, but he... I talked to him about, about studying acting instead of studying business and that I wanted to study acting. Mm -hmm. And he said, if you don't try to do it, you'll always look at different actors, you'll go to the films, you'll go to the theater, and you'll look at these people and think that you could have done it. I teach different people, and, and many of them are in their 30s and only now realize that they, they need this to, to be happy with their lives. And they regret not doing it earlier because it's easier when you don't have a family and, you know, it's just easier as a young person not knowing how hard it is to just dive in. And we can always change directions later in life, right? Wait, in an old silhouette Keeps on speaking its truth That old distinct dialect Is making I wasn't composing back then. It's so funny. I never thought I have it in me. In college, I, I started taking this composition classes to figure out how to become a better singer. So if I under, understand composers better, I'll be a better singer singing their pieces. That's the same as acting, too, in terms of when you act, you have to know as much as you can about the playwright. Right. Because you have to understand where it's coming from with that person so you can kind of tap into that. There's so much emotional information that you get from knowing the person's history or yeah. knowing more of their work and things like that. So then, then what happened? Did you start a band in, in college? Was there some was there some project that happened that kind of uh, changed your perspective on everything? Or, or so a year after college, I went to South Africa to this workshop that a Scandinavian, a Swedish uh, organization called Spiritus Mundi came up with. It gets musicians from conflicted areas around the world work together through music. So we were Jewish Israelis and Palestinians working together for 10 days about music. So did all of you, did this Spirits of Smoothie, they took you guys and put you in South Africa together? Yes. Okay. So we were three Israelis, uh, three Palestinians, three Scandinavians, um, from Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Why three Scandinavians? Because they're sort of the um, neutral side. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they took the conflicting people and then the totally neutral people. Yeah. And put the... Okay. But what was interesting is that it was in South Africa in the town of a local church choir in Limpopo. And so that we would be inspired of a former conflicted area and see how they heal also through music. You know, all these things that you know about your country and the conflict specifically. You read about it, you see the news, you read different opinions and all. I, for the first time in my life, I met people that experience these things on an everyday 
basis. And, and it really opened my eyes. It really changed something in me. One of those Palestinian musicians was... Uh, her name was Manar. And we are really good friends now. You know, by all opinions, it's almost impossible. We, we formed a really strong relationship. So this really changed my perspective. And I started to write and compose according to, to what I now learned. It really rattled me. But this was yeah. the kind of propelling force that pushed you into a lot of your work. Yeah, yeah. And in that same time, you know, we had all those, um, they call it operations in Gaza. So <laughs> a lot of the songs that I composed then was actually me locked in a safe room where all my music instruments were. Being locked in a safe room because we had missiles attacking Israel from Gaza and the news are awful and people are, you know, bashing at each other online and everything is awful. So I was composing a lot of my material back then. Are there are are safe rooms common in in Israel? Yeah. Wow. It's a law actually. Now, if you renovate or build a new building or apartment or a house, you have to have a safe room according to the latest technology. Oh my god! It's by law. Yes. That's crazy. I yes. wonder what that does to people's psychology. To just, I mean, that you have to think whenever you're at your home that I have a room designated in my house in case there's a horrible attack of so, someone trying to murder me. Sometimes where, where things are escalating, we carry gas masks to school and work. Oh my God. Know? It's a thing. <laughs> so um, I'll, t I'll tell you a story about that. I was in Denmark when things were really bad with the Gaza and Israel being under attack. I had to go to a workshop to for my studies as a voice teacher. And I was sitting outside the apartment where I was staying at, waiting for the bus. Denmark is so quiet. The streets were completely empty. It was a weekend. There was no one in the street with me, hardly any cars passing by. And I heard an ambulance and I jumped. I, my body reacted so fast. My heart was beating so fast. I, I didn't understand what's going on. I was shaking. And my adrenaline was rushing, ready to, to, you know, get me running to the nearest safe room. And I realized, oh my God, that's just an ambulance. So that's how you grow up. We all have sort of a, how do you say, um, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah. Syndrome. Yeah. PTSD. PTSD. We all have some sort of it, even if we weren't actually in war. So I wasn't a sol a fighting soldier, but I did experience some bombing attacks, terror attacks near me, enough to rattle me every time there's a thunder, you know. Jack Garfine, mm -hmm. he's a Holocaust survivor, oh. and his his whole family was killed and he was very young and came to the United States at 13. He was in Auschwitz. He did these two different films that were both huge failures at the box office and bad critical reception and everything. He was very young when this happened. He was recommended by Ilya Kazan to, to do this work. Mm. And uh, his friend came up to him and said, Jack, live long enough for them to become like uh, accepted. Right. And then 9-11 happened. And all of a sudden, the film started getting becoming popular. They got put into the Criterion Collection, and oh. and they're like these uh, classic, considered masterpieces now. And 
what the way that he described it was that in terms of Americans, we didn't understand what the kind of trauma that he was trying to express was like. Yeah. Until we we had something like that rattle us. Right. Until you experience it, you don't know. But it's like that all over the Middle East. The Middle East is a fighting zone. It's awful. If you meet people from Iraq or even Egypt, they will tell you the same thing. Or they wouldn't because they're not even aware of... They don't know a different way of life. Yeah. They don't always... like. Also Israelis, they, they wouldn't necessarily agree with what I just said. So what was Menard's perspective? She talked a lot about anxiety and uh, the need to find some relief if it's meditation or smoking or uh, music. She talks. She talked a lot about this, acknowledging it. She talked a lot about her growing up in, in Bethlehem with checkpoints in military and, you know, one day everything is normal, the other... A friend just died, absent from school because, you know, uh, a bullet just hit her by accident. You know, so we shared similar experiences, only the, the gravity of it was much, much bigger than my experiences. Hers? Yeah. Wow. That's an interesting yeah. thing that there's, um because it sounds like, and you're not like explicitly saying it, and this might just be where my imagination mm-hmm. is going because, again, I know nothing and I'm just <laughs> letting my imagination roam wild with these stories. Mm-hmm. But um, it sounds like was she killed... I'm I'm talking about the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. Yeah. Um, that bullet that grazed her friend, my imagination is saying it was like uh, some extremist group or something within her country opposed to Israelis attacking sometimes, Palestinians. But I don't know, also. I have no idea. I have no idea. It depends. My A, a very f- close friend of mine died in Lebanon, you know, just running after three soldiers that were just kidnapped. His tank just went over a bomb that um, Hezbollah put there, and he died on the spot. Her friends, some of them died from... Uh, bullet coming from demonstrators some from soldiers Israeli soldiers and it might have been in self-defense of some soldier or whatnot but it shouldn't happen <laughs> and it's amazing that with all of these with all of these these wars the I think the thing that people don't understand totally is that these are all totally different unique people emotional people who are experiencing these intense traumatic circumstances yeah. in a in a huge ver- variety of ways yeah. and you don't know how that's going to affect someone and then put a gun in their hand right. and you don't and then there's all these innocent people too it's just um it's it's an impossible situation and it's never black and white it's never black and white you cannot sum it up in right wing or left wing pro or against palestine or israel you just cannot do that um it's so complicated but the bottom line is that it shouldn't be like that 
and it can actually be better. But <laughs> that's an entire different subject. What has become of you? We had bigger dreams for you. Eight million refugees with nothing to lose. So open your eyes. We're bleeding, collapsing into despair under the weight of corruption of who's right or wrong. Preventing the dust from burning grounds of the suit. So there be not to conquer. Pollution is bad in our name. The thing that I love what you were talking about I mean it, I loved in terms of it being a perspective that I'd never even thought about or heard about before you were saying that Palestinians within their own country they have no access to the sea yeah they they like the way that you described it they don't have that infinite horizon there's the Gaza Strip that actually is on the sea and okay. there's the West Bank Okay. So I, I, I have no geography skills <laughs> exactly. at all. At all. So you're talking to the child right now. This is this is the teacher in you that needs. Yeah. So Israel is a really small country, and it's from north to south. It's just this thin and long strip, and the Gaza Strip takes a lot of the uh, seashore. So they're experiencing their own uh, kind of hell and humanitarian crisis right now. They do have the sea, so it may be it may be polluted, and it may be controlled by the Israeli military so that they would not get out and harm Israeli territory, right? But they do have the sea. They can see sunsets, beautiful sunsets in the horizon and whatnot. Palestinians in the West Bank might have it a little easier than people in Gaza. But yeah, they don't have this open horizon. They don't have access to the sea. They do have access to the Dead Sea, which is pretty cool, but it's just a big pond between us and Jordan. And if they do want to visit the sea, they need permissions. They need permits. And sometimes they will get them, sometimes not. So they are dependent on the Israeli government and military specifically for everything. And it's just like having a parent. When you're an adult or something like that, the yeah. lack of freedom that you just can't um, go where you want to. Yeah, it, it's very, very complicated. Like to live like that. In Menar's song, so much of it is influenced by the ocean or the or the sea. Why why is the sea such a uh, a presence in that song? So when I first met her, she simply said, "You know, we don't have the sea." I was reacting just like you and try to imagine how it would be like without this possibility. It's so small and, and simple, but I don't know, it represents so much about the lack of freedom in that life. And that sea became, I guess, sort of a symbol of what could have been or should be in the future. My father and I went to Nepal after I graduated from high school. We went to Annapurna and did this uh, backpacking trek for 10 days. And I was, I kept telling him, I want to do this, this more in my life. And he said, you have it right at home. We can do a trail. We can do a backpacking trek. He described Israel and the Palestinian territory as something very similar. You can go from one village to another and meet people along the way that will host you in their house. And it could be wonderful if only we had 
peace in our country. Like, how wonderful would it be to have the walls down and to have her as my friend come freely to Israel and visit me and go to the sea together? It's so simple. It should be <laughs> so simple, I think. So this song represented this hope I had. I'm fascinating by the difference between people like us that grew up encouraged to pursue art mm -hmm. and and you know we had a model a role model that it's possible and those who are not and those who are discouraged wanting to do art but keep uh, being told that it's not practical and when I was six And we moved in with my stepdad. My, my mom and my stepdad have been together my whole life, basically. Oh, okay. And um, we moved into his house. And at the time, he was filming a feature film that he had written. He was directing and doing it all by himself, basically. Mm -hmm. So he was filming inside of the house. Ooh. And it was about his life. Mm. So I was experiencing, when I was six, this guy my stepfather filming a story about his life and a and a romantic relationship that he had uh a few years be prior and i think that that experience probably had something to do with me becoming an artist yeah i imagine and but but then i do so there's this this nurturing part but i also think that there's a chance that a lot of it's just so much genetic the artist that i just uh interviewed last week her mother's in theater and she's like a really cool sculptor her dad's a photographer her grandfather's a sort of famous photographer and she's a photographer mm -hmm. i see it as that i have no other choice so i can make money out of it and i can get a daily you know a day job but i need to do it in some way a lot of people that are in in art and, and made a profession out of it were not being encouraged at all. And that's just fascinating. I think I appreciate their struggle a lot more. Because it's hard as it is, but not being supported by anyone emotionally, that's just, for me, it's impossible. I met this, this gay guy when I first moved to, to New York City. And I remember my jaw dropped when he said that he had moved from Brazil or something. And he had told his mother he was gay. And she said, I don't love you. I, I don't support that. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Mm. And I couldn't believe that lack of support. But it's interesting. And I don't know if this is the same thing. <laughs> But like what you're But talking is, about, that, that kind of support when you have something inside of you that that there's not really any other other way to yeah. do it i think ozzy osbourne was like that i'm going back to like well that would make I've sense heard, right? yeah he, i'm not sure he was encouraged by his friends and family yeah. to become a metal singer you know and now he's ozzy osbourne you know he pursued yeah. his his passion there's one story that one of my teachers talked to me about he he's a teacher of allison janney she just won an academy award for um 
I Tanya or I'm Tanya. Oh, or I Tanya. I Tanya. Oh, it's a good film. Yeah, yeah. She plays Tanya Harding's mother, oh, and um, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's one of my favorite actors. Yeah, and so she, this this acting teacher of of ours, <laughs> um, <Nice>. she, yeah, <laughs> um, she she told him once she was living in New York City and she was young and she was sitting in this like horrible apartment and she was just looking counting the bills of because she knew she had to pay rent and she didn't know how much money she had and she was just gonna scrape by and she was sitting there alone crying everything thinking is this really worth it yeah. questioning thinking should i just should i just stop is all of this shit that i'm dealing with right. worth going through this and then she decided it was it was and i i there's a there's another guy i've talked to his name's greg jabari He's, he won a tony award for billy elliott he's a friend of mine and i remember asking him have you ever thought did you ever think like maybe i should do something else and his immediate response was nope nope <laughs> and I thought, how? How, how could you, you not? That? How could you not ask that? Right. The answer still comes to the same thing, because even if I said I was going to give up acting or something, I I can't not do it. Right. I would just I would eventually find a way to start getting back into it, just because it's the way I look at life. And you see people do that all the time. So they find their community theater or a choir or they start to just record with their phones and, and, and tablets because they need it. They need to let something out. And it's fine. Every form is okay, but denying it could be so disastrous to some people. I, I don't remember his name. He played one of the head terrorists in the... Uh, homeland and i read an interview with him he moved to the u.s to la from i think afghanistan he just moved with his family and kept on going to auditions and pursue his career for 10 years until he got a role until he got a break 10 years of not being a working actor and he had kids <laughs> to feed he didn't get didn't give up that's amazing for me for 10 years he had this patience and persistency to do that those stories really inspire me morgan freeman said something like he was being interviewed and they said well you didn't you didn't get really recognized until you were in your late 40s and he said something about like anything that comes quickly goes quickly or something like that the idea and of course it's not a law because you see so many actors who have a, a career from childhood sometimes preparation without structure that flare up they just fizzle out at the at the same kind of speed you really know when you're not ready for something you're not prepared so you can get all the exposure you want but if you can't deal with it and you're not technically maybe equipped to sing for two hours three times a week then you're just digging your own grave mm. so yeah sometimes it's better for things to come a little later on in life, but you're really prepared to, to grab the, those opportunities and do something about them. And to be able to sustain, sustain that. Sustain that, yeah. 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 I really feel bad for so many of those reality TV actors, dancers, singers. Some of them are equipped. Some of them are totally ready, but a lot of them are not. And... I don't know, just following up on their careers like three years after those shows, sometimes it's really sad. 
Mm-hmm. And an artist knows, I think. If you're really open, you really know when you're not ready for something and when you are, or what you really need to improve in your act. You need to listen to yourself more. Shapes it creates are entrancing. My vision is blurry, painted in red. I am being lured by Maggie the Man. To sway from the ceiling, walk the tightrope. She sits and stares at high. I've been working on this album with an Israeli producer named Avi Elbaz. He's a sound designer. He's so good at what he does. We recorded a lot of my weird voices and made them into beats. <laughs> some some of the beats are not drums, are just my voice. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Do you want demonstrations? Yes, yes, I do. Yes, <laughs> I absolutely. Don't know if this no, this can is handle? Nope, it can handle it. It'll be fine. Yeah. So, for example, in Manar, I th- in Manar's song, I think I do like a, but wow, he that's put cool. Some sound designs. It's on too bad it. there's no camera because it's awesome. oh, you can see for fun yeah. this and <laughs> on Circus, which is the crazy song, um, I did all this. All this wow, that's cool. Voices, yeah. yeah. And then he processed them. Does it? Are you saying anything? No. Or is it? It's just a. Uh, it's just sounds. It's a sound. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> it was pretty fun. If you purchase the album, you get the full credit list. You can also see it on Bandcamp, I think. And then you see, like, some songs does not say drums. <laughs> like in some of the songs, we did not record drums, so wow. you see only vocals, stuff, German bass and but you hear something so that's me <laughs> is that your real name i was born stav rachman which means stav is autumn autumn in hebrew rachman is just a common jewish name uh originally from france Rashman. and my mother is yael german that is a common russian or ukraine name it's supposed to be herman but they changed the H and the G. So she's a musician. And when I went to school, to college, so many of my teachers used to work with her, used to record for her or collaborate with her in Tel Aviv. So it made more sense to take her name. It also sounds better in Hebrew. Like Stav German versus Stav Rachman, which has this harsh sound. So it made sense to just call myself Stav G. I think it's cool easier yeah i had no idea what it meant i thought it was like a stage i thought the whole thing was a stage name oh stop yeah even stop because i've never heard that before so i was just like oh she's very hip (laughs) i try my best even when i first saw you (laughs) uh when i first met you i thought you could you have this glow about you that's very welcoming and warm and and very kind and gentle and because i know at least uh, a specific time in my life when 
I realized that this kind of positive, judgment-free thing was so ingrained in what my training was. Was there something that happened with you? Even as a child, I got a lot of negative criticism, mostly for myself. Then later in college, it was so competitive. 200 singers in a class in a year. There's not enough accompaniment. There's not enough room for all to perform in different projects. And the way we were taught was all about criticism. And some people can grow from it. And it wasn't for me. And then I found... I found this school, the institute that I was trained as a vocal teacher, and their approach was completely the opposite. Only positive, only growth, only encouraging each other. They always ask us, how can we improve as your teachers so you could become better students and better teachers and better singers? And I just took their approach. The switch was so fast. So uh, I, I guess I really found something that works for me if it was so easy to change. My experience in, in acting school was pretty similar. And I, I know that this is a podcast, so the people who taught me might be listening to this. <laughs> but it was very, and it was at the beginning of the program and everything. I won't say where it is. But it's, um, it was very competitive, but in a weird way, because there was only eight or 12 of us in my oh. BFA class. But what was nice eventually was that you got to the realization that you, in no way are you competing, actually compete. Once you get out of that school, you're not actually competing with each other. Right. But the environment that was set up was so different than when I came to New York and it was about forgetting about yourself and uh, not judging yourself and not judging other people and how those two things are related yeah. and, and the connectivity of in terms of acting that like kind of presence. Human beings in general and artists specifically judge themselves all the time. They have intense feelings about their art, their craft and their personalities. So why add more of this? <laughs> That's my thoughts, I guess. When you liberate yourself from this fears and anxiety, what would people think? Then you really are free to, to search your inner truth as an artist. Not saying it's easy, right? But <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I studying, and I still study with this amazing teacher. His name's Alexei Barago from the Russian Arts Theater and Studio. And I remember working on the Seagull once for a class. Mm. And Alexei referenced this Russian writer who I don't remember who, who it was. <laughs> and, and, but he said that this old woman came up to him and said, Oh, your, your writing is so beautiful. It's, a, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's so... She just kept going on and on how, how moved she was mm -hmm. by it. And he said, If you only knew the garbage in which those flowers grow. That kind yeah. of... That you're digging and digging and digging for all of this really painful stuff to reveal as an artist but then it turns into something that that is beautiful or not so painful or something i think my positive vibes and this glow that you described um has a lot to do with me teaching with me as a teacher you know, the positive way of conveying information it gradually changed me as a person because I need to be there for my students but as an artist no I I look for those things that are upsetting me and if I just think about them waking up in the morning I can't even breathe 
So they have to come out in some ways, and some of those ways are in songs. There's a kind of controversial person that I've mostly been just obsessing over because I've been slowly moving into, like, listening more and more to these kind of, this this wave of people who have um, seemingly come out of nowhere after, after this Trump thing, just to experience what their perspective is, to try to come to grips with who these people are, because uh, clearly I did not, I was, I'm from a very liberal household, and my mm-hmm. parents are artists, and my family's artists. So c- listening to these people, it's very kind of painful to hear these new perspectives. But this one guy, his name's Jordan Peterson, he was on uh, Bill Maher a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the meaning of life being, I think it was like responsibility to others or something mm-hmm. like that something incredibly practical the meaning of, of life is your responsibility as someone as, who's a part of the human race basically which regardless of how you feel about that if that's not spiritual enough for you if that's not doesn't work what you're talking about which i find interesting is the empowerment that comes along with having that kind of responsibility that yeah. whether or not it's the meaning of life or, or whatever by going down that route and taking care of other people it forces that kind of responsibility in right. you to say i have to take care of these people i can't fail these people and it helps you grow as a person. You know, in Israel, there's a lot of emphasis on, on volunteer work. Going to the army is mandatory, but it's it's sort of a mandatory volunteer work to go defend your country or to be a secretary helping those soldiers. Or, like I did, go to national service and help society in different settings. So because of that, they implanted volunteer work in our early education. So you get to volunteer helping younger kids than you in elementary school with their homework. And later in junior high and high school, it's mandatory to volunteer, like, a couple of hours a year or monthly depends this responsibility as a person to help others and make your society and and surrounding better it's implanted in me in in a way <laughs> i don't know how it is here um it's not like that <laughs> it's not okay but uh, what they keep what they keep as saying much, as much. <laughs> not as much. or or in a different way yeah maybe but what they keep on telling us is volunteering help you grow. Volunteering helps you see the positiveness in life, gain perspective. All those sayings, and these are not cliches. You actually feel that. It's amazing that there's some kind of difference between the people who hear those things, especially maybe just being young or something. But when I would hear those things when I was younger, I could just, I would probably interpret them as a cliche. Yeah. But but as you get older and you start to actually experience those things, you find yourself saying the those yeah. cliche over. When I had to help someone with their homework, I finally understood something that I couldn't for like the past two years. I was like, oh, it's so simple. I studied with this one teacher named Jack Garfine, and he would say that he learns as much from the students as as they learn from him. And when I was sitting there as a college student, I was like, that is such bullshit. (laughs) In no world do do these students teach you things. And 
now that I direct and teach a little bit, you really do. You, you do. You and you like you said, you're you're refining these skills on your own so that you you understand them yourself. It's just a different way of learning. It's not like a student will tell you what you don't know already. But seeing them learning, see seeing their learning process really teaches you something about your learning process and that's how you learn from them. We actually have a famous say, like, how do you say, an idiom, I guess? Um, no, it's not an idiom. We have a phrase in Hebrew. Mikol talmidai lamadati. It's like, from all of my students, I learned. My grandmother was a headmaster and she kept saying that like a mantra when I was growing up. That's so interesting. Maybe it's not just the old saying of like those who can't do teach. Maybe it's it's more like these those people who really want to learn yeah. the most. Um, yeah, stay in that environment so that they can solidify that kind of knowledge. Thank you for listening. To support Stav and purchase her album, check out her website, stavgmusic.com. Next time on Portrait of an Artist. We sit down and talk with Rob Rosnowski. He's an award-winning actor, author, director, educator, and playwright. He's also the head of acting and directing in the Department of Theater at Michigan State University. We've featured his work at Greenhouse before, and we're excited for you to meet him. Thank you for listening. See you next time.